be seated. Uh, you pray and look, a TV shows up. That's pretty cool. Um, I have a question for you this morning. When I say, uh, think of somebody who has great character, somebody who just kind of immediately comes to mind as that person who's kind or patient or reliable or strong or courageous or whatever virtue of character that is appealing to your eye and to your heart, uh, who comes to mind? Well, for me, uh, when I wrestled with this question, it was just pretty obvious. The, the person that comes to mind is my father-in-law, uh, Jack Wallace. And uh, Jack is now with the Lord. Um, he passed on a number of years ago. But the years that, we, that I had the chance to be with him, he became friend and mentor and father in many ways to me. Uh, literally the most incredible man that I've met. I've lived a long time now. Uh, unbelievable character. He was the kindest, most patient human being I've ever met. To see him with our grandkids was just amazing. And consistency, he wasn't born this way. He, he, wasn't, he became a Christian later in his life, and he experienced the power of God changing him. And, and my wife got to, to uh, be raised by him. She never saw him lose his cool uh, as a kid growing up. Said she can't even barely remember him being flustered. There was one time there was a conversation, she was in the car, uh, and mom and dad had a little tension between them. She could sort of feel it. Uh, and she goes, Jeff, that, that's literally all I can remember. Are you kidding me? <laughs> this is the guy that raised my wife. Uh, she's his daughter. And then she married me. Uh-oh. All right, because the Kearns, we are not known for the patience and the kind of the base response being so incredibly godly. The Kearns are over here. Now, on the Kern spectrum, I, I was pretty good. I was kind of on the high end of the Kern spectrum, all right? But the problem is, is the Kern spectrum is so far removed than where Jack Wallace is, right? And so for 31 years in my marriage, guess what? I've had the opportunity to grow in character of having my first response be the kind one, having my first response be the patient, loving one. And the standard has been Jack, so I've felt inferior my whole life. This is confession time now in front of the church. <laughs> but but it's, it's something where I've been acutely aware. I've seen a model. I've seen an example. And I want to become like him, just to be honest. And by God's grace, I've made progress towards that ideal. I've never had in my 30-some years of pastoring somebody come up to me and say, hey, Jeff, I think changing your character is a piece of cake. I think it's easy because it's not. That's why nobody comes up and says that. And it may be as simple as wanting to lose a little bit of weight. We know how difficult that can be or to become less irritable or to become more kind or more patient or be concerned less about what people may or may not be thinking about we and we can get preoccupied through social media about those types of things. Or perhaps as you're doing introspection, there's something much deeper that you know about. It's in there. You don't want to look at it. But if you take the time to look at it and you're honest with yourself, there's something deeper and more uh, greatly amiss, something that is on the level, if you could dare go there, of addiction. That sin pattern that you just can't seem to eradicate, can't seem to get away from, and you go back to it over and over again, no matter how many times you vow, no matter how many times you tell yourself, that's it. There's no more like that. Maybe you don't have a glaring character weakness, but some of you would just uh, wish that you had more passion for God, more desire to grow in godliness. Whatever it is, I know that in the human experience that sometime or another, all of us are going to want to grow in character. 
so that our responses are different, so that the base response, the natural response, becomes one of goodness, one of strength, one of kindness, one of love, one of admirable character. Now, as hard as this can be, God is after something even far greater than chipping away at some of the rough spots of our character. God is after something much deeper. For those of us that love and trust Jesus and have decided to follow him, what God is up to is he is wanting us to take on the character of Christ, to effectively become like him. In other words, he wants us to become like the most perfect person ever, even more perfect than Jack Wallace. It's a high standard. And the good news that we get to talk about in today's message is the gospel of Jesus changes our character. And if you've been with us, if we've been studying Galatians, as Gary mentioned, we've been looking at the gospel, this, this beautiful message central to Christianity. It's what makes us Christians. And today we're going to examine, as I mentioned, how it changes our character. Because the goal of God in our salvation, in our, in our coming to him, is for us to look more and love more like Jesus. That's his goal. So that you and I effectively take on his character. That's what God is up to in this very moment. That's his plan for you and for me. Now, this all sounds well and good. It actually sounds pretty encouraging and hopeful. Uh, but if you're like me, I, I move quickly to the question, okay, how? Because I've been at this a while. And to be honest, is there's been some ups and downs, but it's been a struggle. And some days I just wonder, do I really get this? So how does God accomplish this? And what role do I play in the process? So to really understand it, I want to take a moment, that's why the TV's here, is to lay a foundation and, and to go into depth on some churchy words, words that you're likely only to hear and hear. They're church words, okay? And, and they come from the Bible. It's important for us to understand them. But I'm pretty sure you're not going to be hearing things outside of these walls like, hey, Jeff, I know that report that you just submitted to me. That was just such a sinful report. It was just so bad. And I've had to turn you into HR, and HR is going to have a meeting with you to kind of talk about your salvation as an employee. All right? We just don't hear that outside of these walls, right? And if you did, you'd be going, wow, that's so weird. All right? But we are in church. And so let's look at some of these, uh, these words that are so rich in meeting and very important for us to understand. So when we say gospel, Right? Many of you know this, but some of you might be new uh, to Christianity and the Bible. And so when we say gospel, it literally means good news. It's a pronouncement, a pronouncement of really, really good news. And here's the good news that it refers to, the good news of salvation. Wow, another churchy word. All right, so what is this concept of salvation? It's really the core of the Christian message. And the elements of understanding salvation begin with you and I having this ubiquitous problem, this problem that we all know is true. And the problem the Bible calls is sin, that we fall short of God's perfection. Our character isn't like God's character. And at the root of all pain, at the root of all suffering, at the root of all the problems that we know in our world is sin. But the problem isn't just out there. If we're honest with ourselves, the problem is inside of all of us. It's something that has spread to the entire race of Adam. 
that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, and it is at the root of every single painful tear that we've cried. This is our problem of sin. So God had a choice to make. When we rebelled, when we went our own way, when we decided not to follow after God, do I wipe it out and start over? Or God did the most unimaginable thing. He came and took our place and lived the life we were supposed to live and then died the death that we were supposed to die. He took our penalty in himself and the greatest act of love imaginable. Now, this could sound like a Disney movie right now. It could sound like a fairy tale. And let me snap you out of that. This is history. It's true. It's knowledge that is necessary for your transformation. And so God, instead of giving us our just punishment in his justice and in his holiness, he cannot wink an eye at sin. He needs to deal with it. And so Jesus took your and my place. And there's nothing that we can do but humbly, by faith, accept the free gift. The Bible calls that salvation. We are saved from the just penalty that was due to us so that we can have life eternal as a family member of God. Now that, my friends, is the 101 class. That's the foundation basic elements of salvation. Let me give you the 201 class. Because the Bible speaks about salvation in three different tenses, using three different terms, and all of it is under the umbrella of salvation. The first part of salvation that we've been talking about for the uh, first part of Galatians is justification. I have been saved. It's in the past tense. It's the, the perfect tense. Um, it's been done. It's been completed. And it's the idea that it's literally a legal term. I want you to imagine a courtroom. And this happens to be the celestial courtroom of God, with God himself presiding as judge. And your case comes before the judgment seat of God. And if you have put your faith in Christ, he hits the gavel and says, justified. And what he means by that is you are not guilty. The perfect judge with perfect justice and perfect judgment says not guilty. In fact, he goes further. Justification has the implication that what's been now assigned to your account is righteousness, the very righteousness of Christ, so that when God looks at you and he looks at me, he doesn't see your heart, he sees the heart of Jesus and the very righteousness of Jesus he's ascribed to you and to me. Wow, that's really good news not guilty. You're free. That's pretty incredible. But then the Bible also goes on to talk about uh, salvation in the present tense. And the fancy word for this is called sanctification. Now, it's interesting. The verb tense is present imperfect. In other words, it's not completed yet. It's being worked out. And so this is the idea that we see throughout Scripture, that we grow in respect to our salvation, that we're constantly growing and looking more and loving more like Jesus. That's a great way to remember what sanctification is all about. The guarantee that we have today is if you're a Christian, God right now is working on you to transform you, to sanctify you, so that your salvation is worked out, so that you actually start growing in Christ-like character. Ultimately, and we sing about this, God's plan for us is glorification. We will be rid of this human body, we'll be given new heavenly bodies, and we will live with Christ as heirs, sons and daughters, with him, reigning with him throughout all eternity. 
And that's our future tense, that that's where we're going. And we sing about that and we dream about that. And Paul says, your mind can't even conceive the good things God has in store for you in heaven. It's way bigger than your greatest thought. That's what he's saying. Okay, and so that's kind of the, the 201 uh, about salvation. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when I was talking about justification, I was here, and I gave an analogy because, as, as Gary alluded to earlier, we cannot do anything to earn salvation. It's completely done by grace. In other words, there's no amount of good works that you can do or I can do to get us there. We can't get good enough on our own. The analogy I gave is uh, if you went over to Cocoa Beach and I said, hey, jump in and I want you to swim and keep swimming and don't stop until you hit the Horn of Africa. Right? And I use that analogy because Gary was traveling to Africa that day. Um, impossible. Can't do it. Now, some of you are really in good shape and you've been training and you're I uh, talked to one of the band members training for a, a triathlon, and, and you might even be able to go three miles. That would be incredible, wouldn't it, in the ocean? So we fall into the trap of kind of measuring ourselves against one another. Well, that person, look how unbelievable godly they are. Look how far they can go. Surely God thinks they're perfect, all right? But it's not true. We have an ocean to swim. God's holiness is like the ocean. It's impossible for you to bridge that gap. Right? You and I don't have the power to become holy enough on our own. Now, unlike justification, um, sanctification, or not unlike justification, sanctification is also impossible on our own. We can't do it. We can't become Christ in our own power. But the difference is, with sanctification, we are involved. There's something we have to do. And if you've been with us, Light should be going off right now. Wait a minute. I thought grace was opposed to earning. All right? I thought you can't earn grace. What do you mean we're involved, Jeff? Well, you need to understand this thing about grace. Grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. All right? The grace of God calls us to live godly lives, and this is where we get involved. We have something we have to do, and we're going to learn about that this morning. So grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. So your sanctification is not automatic, but it is possible. And so today, I'd like us to learn how. So let's turn to Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to look at the passage that we're studying this morning, starting in verse 16. You can follow along in your bulletin or just kind of lean back and listen. So I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires, or for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you no longer, or so you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there's no law. 
Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not be conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you too will be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. This is God's word. So we have here, as we read this passage, I, I, I hope you could sense what's going on here. There's a battle going on. This should resonate with you. When you read that, you go, yep. Right? It, it, it describes our, our condition, uh, humanly speaking. And the battle is for our bodies. God has given us our body to honor him. Um, and he wants us to use our body to serve him, to glorify him in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. All right? And so there's this struggle going on. The problem is, is that our bodies, because of sin, the sin nature is kind of interwoven into the patterns and the habits of the body. So let me give you an example. Is um, Years ago, uh, I was back in the marketplace, and I was working for a company, um, and we were in the builder services industry. And so uh, they had hired me to learn to run the company and to take over as president of the company. And uh, up until this point, I'd always driven a car. I'd resisted the temptation, although there was times I really wanted a really cool car. But I, I drove the car for functionality and for uh, economics. Right? And so I'd buy a car, relatively new, almost new, sometimes new, and then just drive it till the wheels fall off. Well, I showed up at a, a company event, and, and uh, the owner of the company pulled me aside the next day and said, Jeff, I get the car you're driving and all, but if you're going to be calling on our clients, I can't have you showing up in that car. Uh, and so he said, but don't worry about it. We're going to lease the car for you. And so I want you to go out and get a really nice car, um, uh, SUV if possible, and, and I'm going to pay for the lease. We'll pay for the insurance, pay for the gas, pay for the tolls, pay for the everything. It won't cost you anything. Uh, so, wow. All right, so I grew up in Detroit. My dad worked for Ford all these years. So I went to the Lincoln dealership. Uh, this is kind of the premier uh, dealership for, uh, for all Ford products. And I drove off a lot with the Mac Daddy Lincoln Navigator, jet black with leather interior. It was just, it's like, oh my goodness, this is great. It was so comfortable. If the thing had a bathroom, I would have lived there. I mean, it was great. Um, and so no sooner had I, I driven off a lot and drove back and forth to work um, a couple of days, I, I realized it had a pull to the left. Ah, that's, that's kind of too bad. So I figured new vehicle, maybe they didn't get all the tuning right, so I took it in. Uh, went to there, they, yeah, we'll do an alignment. They did the alignment, drive home, next couple of days, pulling to the left. I must have taken that thing over the three years in at least seven times. I finally gave up. They could never fix it. It was just ingrained into the character of this vehicle. Right? It just wouldn't want to go left. It just constantly pulled that way. And, and so uh, similarly for us in the analogy, in our humanness, sin is so ingrained into the patterns and the habits of the body, it's always got to pull towards sin. That's why we see the passage points out that the act of our sinful nature are obvious. They're like a, a dashboard light going off. So the angry word the lustful stare, the prideful comment, the half-truth, the unjust judgment, the guile of gossip and slander, the selfish choice, the unkind words. These are things that we struggle with consistently, and our conscience is there to remind us later, oh, sometimes in the very moment, 
uh, there's something better for us to give our lives to, but there's a struggle we all identify with, right? Well, I love uh, that the scripture is so honest about this. In Romans 7, there's just an incredible passage where ta Paul talks about this struggle. And last week, if you were with us, Pastor Oscar introduced us to the, the uh, Passion Translation, which is a new translation come out. And I just love the way this passage reads. Listen to this, Romans 7, verse 15. Paul says, I'm a mystery to myself. For I want to do what is right, but I end up doing what my moral instincts condemn. And now I realize that it is no longer my true self doing it, but the unwelcome intruder of sin in my humanity. For I know that nothing good dwells in the flesh of my fallen humanity. The longings to do what is right are within me, but the willpower is not enough to accomplish it. Isn't that good? That so describes our condition. I want to do what's good. I set out to do what's good, but the very good that I want to do, I end up not doing. And the thing I don't want to do, I end up doing that thing. But listen to what he says. The longings to do what is right are within me, but willpower is not enough to stop it. This is consistent with what he teaches elsewhere in Colossians 2, verse 21. He says, your rules... Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. They are of no value in restraining fleshly indulgence. Willpower doesn't work. It won't work. Say it with me. Willpower won't work. We will get defeated every single time. We'll be beaten every time. I remember stories from my granddad. Um, I was just riveted, and it's probably why I like to study World War II history. He would tell me of stories of him being a soldier in World War II. He was in the infant, uh, 28th Infantry Division. The Germans called it the Bloody Bucket because of the patch that they wore on their shoulders. And they were a tough unit. Uh, they showed up in Normandy six days after D-Day, and they fought for the next 11 months all the way through the end of the war. Um, and he saw a lot of action. He told me stories of fighting through the Hurtigan Forest and through the Maginot Line and going into these towns and literally having to clear out the town house to house, room to room. Um, these were courageous guys. And there's a reason why America and her allies prevailed. We were better trained, we were better equipped, uh, our command and control was better, but more, most importantly, we were outfitted the best. Our, our equipment was superior, um, and it's why we won. And to use that analogy, when you go into battle against sin in your own character, if you're doing it in your own willpower, you're going up against the enemy with rocks and sticks and bows and arrows. And they have tanks and bombs and guided missiles. You're going to lose every time. You're going to lose every time. Willpower won't work. Listen to what Richard Foster says in the book Celebration of Discipline. Willpower has no defense against the careless word in the unguarded moment. The will has the same deficiency as the law. It can deal only with externals. It is incapable of bringing about the necessary transformation of the inner spirit. Right? We can fix the outside. We can't fix the inside. So what do we do? I'm glad we still have time this morning to kind of go there. Because right? it would be pretty depressing if we ended now. But here's what we do. We, if you notice in Galatians 5.16, this is God's solution. And we as Christians need to master this and understand this. He says, walk by the Spirit. 
be led by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, live by the Spirit. This is consistent with what Paul teaches elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18. He says, be continually filled with the Spirit. In Romans 8, he says, live according to the Spirit. Have your mind set on the Spirit. This is all the same thing, saying that we need to learn how to access the power that God provides for us through his Spirit. This is the power of God that enables us to change. Willpower won't work, but as we access this power, our character will change. And the promise is the fruit of the Spirit starts to basically change your character so that you become a person who loves, who experiences joy, has peace, patience, kindness. Those aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is really what God is after. Now, this is not automatic for us, and we're going to learn how to do it. But to learn that, that, there's a little bit more information that we need that's vitally important so that you're convinced that this power is adequate power. Because if we don't go here next, you might get tempted to go after this thing in your own power, and you're powerless. So I want to take a closer look for a moment at the Holy Spirit. All right? The Holy Spirit. Now, when I think about the disciples these 12 individuals that got to be with Jesus for three and a half years, sometimes I get a little bit envious. I think they got the better deal. Wouldn't it have been great to be with Jesus for three and a half years, to sit around the campfire with him, to kind of debrief after you know, feeding the 5,000, and to be out on the boat with him, to be fishing, to have so much is in the Gospels, but there's so much more that occurred. And I would just like, oh, wouldn't that have been awesome? Well, Jesus actually said that those of us who've come after, we got the better deal. When the disciples were grieving that he was leaving, he told them in John, he said, it's better for you, it's actually best for you if I go away. What? How could it be better for you to go away? Jesus, I'm going to miss you. I want to be with you. And here's what he said in John chapter 14. If he goes away, he said, I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another adequate, or another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The word cannot, world cannot accept him because it is neither sees him nor knows him, but you will know him for he lives with you, and watch this, and he will be in you. This is the mystery of God in us. Christian, the moment you put your faith in Christ, he gave you the spirit of God. The Spirit of God is in you. Every single believer on this planet has the Spirit of God inside of them. And so the key for us to be able to live the Christian life is to learn how to walk with him, to be led by him, to live with him, to be filled with him, to have our minds set with him, on him. This is the key for us as Christians. It's essential. But as you read this passage, the one previous, it's something we do. We have to walk. We have to live. We have to be led. And so what we need to understand at this point is that willpower will not work. We need an empowered will. It's possible. Now, there's a couple of things here, and I'm not just playing a word game. We're going to walk out of here understanding what this means. All right? But notice that will is involved in both of them. You're still involved with an empowered will. The difference is, what power source are you accessing? Is it your own power, or is it the power of God? 
right? Willpower won't work. What we need is an empowered will. So the question is, how do we do this? How do we access the power of God? Uh, how do we find the power button, if you will, so that we can turn on that power in our lives? Well, let me give you this illustration, perhaps it'll help. Uh, uh, last fall, we as a staff team, we went over to Boston for a conference where uh, there's a number of us there. We had a big old passenger van, big 15-person van. And uh, it was a really good conference. We came out of the conference, and, and in the morning, we were setting to come back. I got to the van first, and it was still locked up. So I set down my bags uh, next to the van, and then Jill, my wife, called me to come over to help her on some things. So I went over, and when I got back, the van was all loaded up. Everybody was in there. So I jumped into the front seat. They leave the front seat open for the old guy. And, uh, and so I jumped in, and they started backing up the van, and all of a sudden, we felt bump. Oh, no. And when John and I looked at each other, John was driving. I jumped out. And sure enough, uh, the van had run over a computer bag, and it was mine. And it had my computer in it. And uh, uh, Mac computer versus 15-person passenger van, the van won. And so I had to get a new computer. I went to our computer guy, Brad, faithful guy. And, and he got me a new uh, Mac computer. And like everything Mac, they always upgrade it. And so when he gave me my computer, I looked for the spot where I turned my old computer on couldn't find the button. And I'm like looking, and I'm holding it up and down. I'm looking in the back, and I'm like, uh, Siri on. Uh, Siri you know, and it just wouldn't turn on. And much to my embarrassment, I was like, uh, Brad, I don't know how to turn on the computer. And he laughed, and he showed me the little button, and it's kind of uh, up in the toolbar, and it looks the same color, and it's hard to see. And it's like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. All right? But I found the power button, and so finally was able to turn on uh, the, the computer. Well, let me introduce you to the power button for how to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. The power button for us, oh, I'm going the wrong way, forgive me. Um, the power button is surrender. Surrender. Now, when you hear this in our culture, we think of giving up and giving over, all right, or giving up and quitting. It's not a giving up. It's a giving over and entrusting to. This is what uh, Christian surrender looks like. It's giving up on yourself and giving yourself over to Christ. And it looks like two things. This is what surrender looks like. First and foremost, it looks like a desire for God. This is the person who has fallen in love with God and is so enamored with what Jesus has done for them that their heart longs for God. They identify with what David said in Psalm 42, verse 1. He says, as the deer pants for the water brook, O Lord, so my soul longs for you. And this is the heart that desires to please God and wants to have their mind set on God and begins to practice the presence of God, thinking about him all throughout the day because his spirit is there. And they cultivate this life by engaging with the spiritual disciplines because the spiritual disciplines get us plugged into the power source. They get us plugged into God. So in the computer analogy, the computer power cord is your spiritual disciplines. It gets you connected to God. Then we can take the computer with us and we go along and eventually it starts running out of batteries and we got to come back and we got to get more power, right? We got to get connected to that power because that's what helps us grow. And so similarly for us, this, this time with God is what he's after. 
this desire to please him. And as you are walking with him, he will begin to help you as you invite him into the hundreds of little choices that you make throughout the day. And as you make those choices time and time again, you're training yourself for godliness and your character actually starts being changed by the spirit of God so that your base response becomes the natural response, becomes the godly response. And this is the beautiful process, but it's an involved process. There's a word, this is, this is an unbelievable word that's only used a couple times in the scripture. It's found in 1 Peter where it talks about our character becoming virtuous, the character of virtue. The word is arete. And what it means is godly character arrived at through spiritual disciplines over time. Godly character arrived at through spiritual disciplines over time. This is the promise of what God will do for us as we desire him and we long to please him and we walk with him every day. The second thing that surrender looks like, surrender looks like confession and asking for help from God and from others. Surrender looks like confession and asking for help from God and others. It begins by admitting I'm powerless, that I've got a problem. And I need your help, God. And I'm going to get honest with myself, and I'll be honest with you, and I'll invite my community into this so that they can help me as well. I've been doing this a long time, and it's surprising to me just how infrequently we're willing to go there. And if you're unwilling to go there, you might not be surrendered. Right? This is absolutely essential. Now, I learned uh, about this many years into my ministry uh, when I joined a um, a, a group of adult children of alcoholics. We had some things in my family that started working their way out of my life, and I needed some counseling about those. And I made many friends in that group, and I encountered a number of people that overcame some pretty serious addiction. And what they would tell you is this step was the game changer. When they were able to make a fearless moral inventory of what was really happening in their life, and they got honest with themselves, honest with God, and honest with another human being, that was the foundation for change. Now, I hesitated bringing up that example because when I talk about 12 steps and I talk about, you know, addiction, most of you in the room go, oh, that's not me. And this is the shame, the shame of it all because all of us need this. It's not for them. It's for all of us. They've just identified what spiritual formation looks like, and they're doing it. And, and we've so classified it for this special group of people that we've exonerated ourselves from seeming like we have that need. And it's just the furthest thing from the truth. No wonder our churches are just filled with people that are not experiencing the abundant life and are experiencing addiction and experiencing entrapment and experiencing enslavement. God wants us to be free, but we have to access his power. We have to access that which God has made available to us, and it looks like surrender. It looks like inviting God into and asking for his help and then inviting our community into the help. I watched my friends in this group call each other in the middle of temptation saying, hey, I'm about ready to go there, and I don't want to go there because I know how, powerful or how horrible it is, but it feels so powerful right now. Would you help me? And I watched them take themselves and put themselves in a position to access the power of God. So this is it. This is how you do it. This is how you grow in Christian character. And so let me leave you uh, with this final thought. Willpower won't work. What we need is an empowered will. May God give us all the grace to access that power. Let's pray.
Father, thank you um, for this opportunity to get equipped with that which we desperately need so that we can actually experience transformation in our character. And we can become the people, Lord, that you long for us to become. It's not easy, but it is possible. And so, Lord, I just pray that we as a community would really lean into this and would really rise up to support one another uh, in this process of becoming the people you want us to be. And so, Lord, I just commit each person to you. You can meet them exactly where they're at. I pray they'll lean into you by faith and trust you, Lord, to guide them in this process of sanctification. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.